I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening. I'm going to keep this short right now because it's a busy it's a busy little stretch, but this is a really good episode. I had a conversation with Brian at the request of a listener. Jeremy wrote in and said he had tried looking for that Eudora Welty story, The Siren, that Brian had so enthusiastically recommended, and he couldn't find it. I was not able to provide a link to it, and so he said... First, that he'd love to read it, and then that he'd love to hear Brian and me discuss it. And so we looked into it, and uh, Jeremy was right. <laughs> the siren is very hard to find because it does not exist. The story is called The Whistle. And uh, Brian and I read it. It is a great story. We talked about it. Before that, though, we talked about sort of an interesting, flawed, but provocative little essay by Mary Gateskill, and a few other silly things came up that I thought would be totally (laughs) inoffensive. Uh, But as it turns out, uh, Alice listened to part of our conversation, and she strongly disagreed. So if you find yourself uh, shaking your head vociferously, then just know that her uh, her rebuttal is on the way. Uh, Oh, and just a point of pure, pure vanity. Just nothing but vanity for me. I say at one point that there were some insect bites, and I described them as being the size of a green pea. I did not mean the diameter of a green pea. I meant the entire cubic volume of a green pea, as if it had been inserted under the skin and then uh, set on fucking fire. So that's what I was talking about, and that will make a little bit more sense once we get into our uh, our conversation about what it means to be a man, a question best settled by two effete uh, literature-loving podcasters. I hope you do enjoy this conversation, and I will have more uh, more poetry-focused stuff coming for you very soon, including the second half of my conversation with Cameron about all those fucking poems. <laughs> you want to hear a bear trap of a thought experiment for you that is actually a humiliating anecdote about myself? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So, because I, I, I have gleaned that you, though in some ways having a more traditionally masculine set of interests and orientations, you are... You're just uh, talking about sports. You're just saying yeah. I like I like playing and watching sports. Yes, that's okay. a big that's a big one. Like there's yeah. been how it's many not an orientation? It's just I, well, I I enjoy sports. I mean, how many how many awkward non conversations in my life would have been ameliorated? Like would have been <laughs> eased by my ability to say even the slight like like some guy in the gym saying like oh bulldogs because I was wearing some bulldogs things like oh you know they're they're playing on the the they're playing for the I championship this year I and I say it. like huh what. I understand. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm so, just saying that I, I don't I don't believe I am more traditionally masculinely oriented yeah. than you. Well, you're also um, you're an entrepreneur, you know, like <laughs> as you all know. men should be. Right. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you know, there's there's there are various the money expectations, money yeah. focused. I mean, yeah. but both both of us make less money and are less ambitious than our wives, True. and we both spend more time on childcare 
than yes. our wives do. And we, I mean, we, we both are playing the traditionally female role within right. our family lives. Yeah, no, I mean, but it's like academics. It's like, like in the contest of failed men, you fail, you come out failing less than me, I guess is how I think of it. But insofar as I can like hit a jump shot and know the difference between a running back and a tight end. Oh God, I don't even, I couldn't even speculate about that, except that I would guess that the running back runs more. That's the only guess I would make. They sort of run equally, but the running okay. back runs more with the ball and the tight end ah. runs and people throw him the ball. Okay, tight end just, it only know, sounds like sexual slang. That's all it's it sounds like It's insane that that's yeah. a real word. It's, it's yeah. like if you use it enough, you stop hearing it. But like if anybody, if tight end were the name of anything that you were being introduced to for the first time, it would be unacceptable. Yes. Uh, I, I feel quite tolerant of it, but just, but curious. Um, uh, <laughs> clearly not curious enough to actually learn what the fuck it is. So my daughter had a delightful friend she didn't see very often because it was, it was sort of for logistical reasons. It was not all that easy, but, but, uh, she, Which and this girl? Friend, the older or the younger, the older girl, um, okay. she and this friend would go usually out to this friend's house because the friend lived kind of out in the woods and they would go down to the Creek with this friend's mom and walk on the Creek. And there were some crawfish in the Creek and your daughter grew up in the, uh, in the 1830s. No, her friend more or less did, but what world is this? I'm so jealous. There's a there's, well, there's a lot of wood. I mean, you know, like the, there is a lot of woods out here. I mean, that's, that's yeah. yeah. So, so, but and they live, they really live out in the woods. We we live like adjacent to some woods. Um, but uh, but they would go play in the creek, and uh, and in this, in the course of their play, the this friend's mom would refer to in sort of like encouraging these these delicate little children to to like try new things that might be kind of scary. She, she started what she would call the Brave Girls Club. And where she, you know, which is like, oh, well don't, you know, if a crawfish bites you or pinches you, you don't, you don't have to cry a lot. It's okay, you know, it's like yep. a good, normal kind of toughening thing. So- And the that, members of the Brave Girls Club were just her daughter and your daughter? And herself, I guess, but yeah. Um, the, the lady, the, the grown up. I think she was, uh, was trying to set an example. She right? insisted on being a member of the, she didn't want to be left out of I the Brave Girls I Club. I don't know, but it, but it was, it, the implication was like, as captain of the Brave Girls Club, I dubbed the, <laughs> you know, Sergeant second class of the Brave, yeah. Um, Secretary so, and treasurer of the, right, of the yeah. Brave Girls Club. Uh, so this was like a totally wholesome, lovely thing. And uh, this, uh, the mom, the friend's mom was also a like very successful writer we know who lives in the area. So we, uh, also had some social, um, exchange with this, uh, woman and her husband who's also a writer. And, uh, particularly during the beginning of kind of I'm going to interrupt even though you don't yeah. want me to, I think your listeners would be interested in you uh, defining this. What is a very successful writer to Matthew Buckley Smith? Oh, okay. So her last... Yeah, I think it was her last book had poet, a novelist, nonfiction, novelist and nonfiction writer and had a both a glowing solo review in the New York Times and a separate uh, um, profile of her also in the New York Times book. Or yeah, no, that counts. Um, yeah. So I would see, you know, so that's my I mean, definitely not like Colson White had Jonathan Franzen successful, but like from our perspective, you know, and like has a standing, you know, an arrangement with Grey Wolf for her to like publish whatever she wants to write. Um, right. So I now know who you're talking about and she's a wonderful writer. Yes, she is. She's a very good writer. Um, and 
in, especially during quarantine, we had a number of like Zoom regular meet hangouts with them and then would sort of like, as we were tiptoeing back into the world, we would go, they only ever wanted to hang out at their place in the woods, which is fine. But we would <laughs> go out and like stand outside their house and have drinks out in the woods. Uh, so after the first time we went out there in the evening, right, because I'd like taken Josie there during the daytime, but like we went there at twilight and I don't know how buggy it is where you live. <laughs> But I assume <laughs> I assume you've spent some time in upstate New York, which I understand can be buggy. Right? Yes, no, I'm familiar with bugs. We yeah, but, but there, there are actually a couple different cat cat categories of bugs. Yes, all of which I can't stand. But <laughs> in but yeah, I I can I can talk bugs. Okay, so obviously the mosquitoes were like tons of mosquitoes in Atlanta growing up. That's I'm you know they're annoying, but I, I'm used to that. They're ticks, which are troublesome, but also like less of a nuisance and more of like a like a risk existential you, horror yeah. right, like, right, yeah. right. and also like we just, all just live in, yeah. in um, horror and fear of yeah. ticks yeah. you're you not swatting away um uh, one time uh, so it, my my wife made fun of me for being terrified of, of ticks part of it because of this neurological disorder i have i don't want other neurological disorders to right near my yeah, family yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what if so, the two cancel each other out exactly <laughs> negative times a negative we um so we went to our friend's place out in the country and like we tucked our sweatpants into our socks and stuff like we did all this sure. this normal tick stuff and i'm like we really need to give them a tick check and we all agreed we we're going to do a tick check but the, everyone was sort of rolling eyes the person's house was like come on like i'm here all the time and i i never did ticks so we did a tick check and it was fine this is when my kids were younger we look at the, you know their ankles and like under their arms and behind the, the nape of their neck and sure, yeah. there are no ticks and we're good so the next day I were back home and I'm giving my younger son, he was probably like four then a bath and I'm cleaning up his hair and his ears and stuff. And I'm cleaning up his body and there are four ticks sucking on his testicles. <laughs> my God. Jesus Christ. And I'm like, ah, look, what, how did, what, did, what is, how did, what? Uh, and like, like he, what he was like, old and old enough to be able to stay still but like i don't know if i could be still if someone was like showing up with tweezers what? in my and just, i want just i want them to tell, off did you yeah i just tweezed them off and he was fine i want to tell the story that like there were 12 ticks because like that's what it felt like you know what i mean like like in the moment it oh my God. it it was like like they just kept on coming and coming and coming. I mean, there were just four of them and i saw right. them all at once but like it was like horror movie stuff you know like giving your kid a bath you're like in brooklyn you know with the right. doing the so, I mean, and with with nothing but respect for your son like a small child's testicles are very small like it's a very barely, small it's, area it's like a to have four of, ticks on yeah no no it was like it it, it was it was as though the ticks got together just to fuck with me, you know, and like, like <laughs> hung out with that. So horrifying. anyway, I, I just like, I'm, I don't care for it. And then of course, for like the next week or month or whatever, you're like examining his body with, for like red circles, which do or don't come depending on what doctors you listen to. But okay. So we're not talking about ticks in this no, anecdote. No. You're in we're, the woods. There are some gnats, yeah. there are some mosquitoes, so, maybe some ticks and, and what happened. And I should say before, so when we went out there, I like sprayed our, you know, you used some bug spray, some, you know, and then uh, got out there and they had some like some other bug spray there. So we used some of what they had. And uh, are you familiar with noceums? Yeah, I don't think they're called that everywhere, but I, I am well, another familiar term for them what... is biting midges. Yeah, I, yes, I am yes. familiar. Yes. So, uh, so I had not encountered them much but uh they are they are 
um, apparently, and I did not know this, very uh, choosy. Like it really varies who they who they prey on. Like based on what people smell like or what yes, pheromones they're delivering. Totally, or, yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so uh, I got home from our first <laughs> time having drinks out there at twilight and and my legs itched a little that night. A full 24 hours later, they started to break out. Oh no. And these are like, to just to give you a sense of like, I, I'm not complaining about mosquito bites. These are, they they took a full like two days to like achieve their full selves. It's never happened to me. Yeah. Each one of these bites was the size of a green pea, but purple. Oh. And it itched. I can't tell you how badly. And this was like all around my ankles and my calves. I in like a state of and like it was to give you a sense, like it wasn't just that they itched. I was bitten. I counted over 150 times. No, what are you talking about? Over 150 times. Like my entire lower legs were purple and swollen up. And it was so much it's like I felt the venom in me. It was so when was sickening. This? This was a couple of years ago at this point. It was so like a, height of the pandemic when you couldn't. Well, it was right. like right when you could start to go hang out at somebody's house. Right. Outside, you know. Right. So, right. I mean, it was miserable and horrifying. And, you know, and like my legs were truly discolored for like weeks and weeks and weeks after that. Like <laughs> it was, it took, like I thought they were going to scar. It took forever for them to really fade. <laughs> so, you know, uh, a, a couple weeks after that, this writer wrote again and said, uh, oh, hey, um, do you guys want to come over and have some more drinks at our house at twilight outside <laughs> you, in the yard? When you finally recover, this was like right when you stopped suffering? Right, when it was just like on the wane. I mean, because it, it, right. it itched like <laughs> fucking crazy for yep. days and days. And it just, it was terrible. So I, all I said, all this is a group thread, all of our spouses. So all I did is I wrote back and I said like, do you have any other maybe stronger bug spray you use because i was assuming they deal like they live out there so it's like do you have any like particularly strong bug spray you could recommend like i'll you know like i'll even come back to your house to this like it is one of these like god forsaken swamp yeah. like i just like i want some like do i need to go by deet do i need to like spray paint but like just like all i did was ask for a recommendation for like some like good stuff do you have like that you like you know you live out there you know that her response to the group thread yeah. was, sounds like someone's not ready to join the Brave Girls Club. <gasps> so I want to hear what you what your response would be, and then I'll tell you what my response was. Oh, because I no suspect way. yours will be will make mine seem even more clownishly excessive than it was. No way. You see, because I... No, there's, there is no way to be more... Ex any response would be not enough to that. That, My response was never speak to her again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she's <laughs> done. She's done. No, yeah, that's, okay, that okay. relationship is officially over. Good. All right, I feel totally no, vindicated. I'm amazing. No, All right. No, the only, the only, yeah. No, that's 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 an unacceptable. I mean, and gendering it is also three. Like a it was weird, the three. The three three points. It was yeah. It was your pussy. Yeah, you're exactly. a girl, and I'm yep. going to do this in front of your spouse. Yep. Exactly, exactly. And and her spouse, presumably. And but her, I, yeah, and her husband. Yeah. yeah. I but no, it's it's um that's totally unacceptable. The only way that you are uh I don't know, uh vulnerable to criticism there is as soon as my legs recovered with all those bites and everything, I would take a big gross photograph 
and send it to her and say, what did you do to me? Right. I didn't. You know what I mean? Yeah, I didn't. Because I, like, did, I also didn't want to like, I didn't want to make a thing out of it. I know. Before I know. that. But I've, but I've. But the then I was mad because I, I didn't have proof. I was like, no, it was really bad. Like it was like. At that point, like, right. You didn't yeah. have proof. But you, that's interesting. You never photographed the horror that was. Well, what was I going to do with it? I don't know. I, I would have photographed my legs if they look crazy. But my, I have found that the way that I can best survive a lot of relationships, like my relationship with my mother-in-law, especially has gotten way better after I've developed this. And you, you know this about me. I had a little bit of it in grad school where I sort of somewhat comically tell people what bothers me about them all the time in a way that enables me to be in situations where otherwise I, I, I would struggle to hold my tongue. Like you know when what I mean? you tell like me I, that you really love it about yourself, that you tend to be on time to things. <laughs> which, it, yeah. It's like our listeners don't realize that like I'm chronically late for every single thing we've ever planned to do in our lives. Yeah. 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 So I, right. So I might, right. So instead of sitting on that, I will jokingly scream at you about <laughs> right. it, but it's clearly not a joke, but it's also yeah, a joke. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, and that's, that's, I think that's why for some people I'm, I'm, very difficult to interact with because it's unclear it, they don't really know what's going on but it means that there are very few people who i i think with whom i'd be capable of having that sort of interaction where i'd like i would be polite to the point that they could then say something mean and offend me i think you're just more polite than i am so therefore like I, I teeter up like i made it easy for her to be unspeakably cruel well yeah no that that's a relationship ending uh comment in my in my book okay good in my book I, I and i totally actually I, I actually mind being called a girl less than her using a girl as an implied insult which there's is some, so weird because she's also like very in a way like that very I don't like girl power that. feminist kind of like it's an right. odd it was an odd thing because even if she had said I would still have been very angry if she'd said, sounds like someone's not ready to join the Brave Boys Club, but it's like- But it the Brave Boys Club would have done a couple things. Saying yeah. the Brave Boys Club would have would have uh, degendered it, I think, in a nice right. way. And it also would have made you a part of the joke, right? Like she would have shifted the joke in such a way where it would like suit you. And it, th there would be almost a generosity towards that. Like yeah. th th that it would be more of a tease. It wouldn't have been good, but it would have been right. less But bad. it would have been more of a tease. But Better this, would have been, I recommend Deet. Right. I'm sorry you or got bitten by bugs. Or, or I'm like, so sorry. It's really awful for a, for a, a small group of a subset of people that you find, I'm sorry you find yourself in that. I, oh, I'm so embarrassed. You should have told me earlier. Of course, we can. Meet oh no, I, else. I didn't. I didn't lead by telling her about the noceums. I just asked her for a bug spray recommendation. Right, but but I'm saying that she could, yeah. she could have interpreted that. Right. And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and been been apologetic. No, I I am a hundred percent on your side with this. Okay, That's good. absolutely right. absolutely unacceptable behavior on, on right. her part. Excellent. All right. I'm. Uh, this was this was um, uh, un, unexpectedly validating. Uh, well, well, I'm here to unexpectedly validate. Good. So we have these two very different things to discuss. Do you want to, should we start with the Mary Gates skill or the, yeah, let's Orwell start team? with the Mary Gates skill and then okay. let's see whether, let, let's see whether we would think that she would like or dislike the whistle and why I, yes. I think that's a, that's, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good that's way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Excellent.
so Mary Gatesville in Unheard, which I didn't, it's like not a public, it's like a Substack related thing or something. But anyway, so, so somebody recommended this to us, I want to say. To you. No, well, I you guess somebody must have recommended that. Somebody must have pointed this to me in some context. But so she wrote an essay called The Deracination of Literature. Uh, Mary Gateskull, she's a, a short story writer and novelist. Uh, and I guess essayist. I have only read maybe two of her short stories. And uh, one I don't remember. And one was amazingly good. One was like a great short story. So that's really my total knowledge of her. And I mean, in just that like Joanna likes her stuff in general. Um, do you know or think much about her? Yes, I am a uh, a big fan of her work. I, I came to it as most people did with um, the collection that included Secretary. Um, I, I, I think the collection was called Bad Behavior, but I, I read... Oh. I was read that, that. The, the, the movie was based on. Yes, exactly. Oh, great movie! I didn't know it was a based. On yeah, story. and that that leaned more into the titillating side. If I, I don't, I'm not a, mm -hmm. at all a, a completist when it comes to her work, but I that led to some of the, the the more titillating aspects of sort of the romance and and sadomasochism and, and addiction. And I, I was really excited by by that book. Um, and then I read Veronica, which was a lot less titillating, but I I, I really liked it. Um, she, it, it was sort of a, a, a dark and an honest look at um, at, a, at a former fashion model, I think, and I, I think um, it's it's AIDS either adjacent or maybe the, the main character uh, has AIDS. I, I I forget a lot about the book, but I. I remember the short stories really, and I, I really love her short stories and her novels. And I, I can't say there are a lot of writers whose whose short stories and novels I, I really like. I've only yeah. read Veronica um, short stories in that initial book, and then short stories where I've seen them um, in variety of places, including uh, definitely The New Yorker and Esquire, and maybe some Best American as well. But um, I'm a fan. She's also late in her career now. Uh, she's in her let's see let me look her up she is uh 60 67 years old so not not so late in her career necessarily um she could be at the at the very core of it how do you talk about poets in that way what what would she be a young poet uh a living poet a living she'd poet, a living poet. Yeah, she, she she's a living poet, novelist yeah. but yeah. either way i i'm admirer of her uh short fiction her long fiction and this is the first essay of hers i have read yeah so she has a she has an argument in this essay. So deracination meaning up being uprooted. Being yeah, up which is which is something I was going to get to later. But if you want to start with that, I'm okay with it. I really don't understand that word in terms of the title of this essay. It's a word I learned from the fugitives by way of Ryan. So like poets and essayists who were in, and novelists who were interested in a sense of place and in particular in an agrarian approach to life in the south in the rural south and they talked about the deracination of modern day life because we were torn up and not connected to any place what always this seems like a strange me, application in this essay. right and i i think that i i have a guess at what she's doing but before that i've always been curious about this idea and i i thought that i incorrectly associated deracination with southern 
literature because I thought of the, the root there as having to do with race, um, right. which it doesn't at all. That's just a coincidence I mean, that this well, word used by Southern writers that well, involve. I, mean, I assume. Zero, I mean, I, I don't I know the etymology. Is also, I, but I, I, assume I just assume they have a shared etymology, right? Like I assume race that, also, right. That, that's what I assume. Yeah. That it was to come from a shared etymology. But it seems yeah, yeah. strange that the school of unrooting has this race adjacent etymological oh. history. Huh. And so it was never a part of my yeah, to the American Heritage Dictionary. Race comes from a, the Italian word razza of ultimately unknown origin. Well, that's not helpful. <laughs> no, it's not helpful <laughs> at all. Whereas I guess racinate, like that comes from radix, I guess. Well, roots, right? I mean, well, yeah, like ra ra right. radix malorum cupiditas s. Oh, right. old Norse ras current. Wait, what? Oh, that's race as in like run. So okay. then, fuck, I don't sense. know, whatever. Etymology is useless, apparently. Right. Well, I think that the, the, the deracination here has something to do with uprooting in her central metaphor. And I can, mm -hmm. I can get there um, if you'd like me to run through the first page and a half of this at, at least, where sure. her take is that she used to give a speech all the time about literature, and now she's starting to doubt it. And in her in her parlance, I'm not sure that people can find this thing that I used to have to say meaningful anymore. And she blames it on modernity in general and on the iPhone specifically. But her general take is that something has happened in contemporary life, which made this speech I used to give no longer applicable or no longer as applicable. Um, and then she goes shallowly into the speech she used to give and the speech she used to give involves something that she calls the inner weave or the subtle life of a story. I, I think she makes a wonderful point in saying that when people tend to talk about books, they talk about plot and characters uh, because they're important, but also because they're the easiest to talk about, where you can say what happens in a story and you can say what a character is like. She says something more difficult is this thing that she refers to as an inner weave or subtle life which she then goes on a bit of an extended metaphor as the unconscious or the guts of the story or the body. You feel it, you know its presence, but it's easy to misunderstand. You're not quite sure it's there. You rarely come to, you know, unless in her extended metaphor, you're a surgeon, you're never going to actually see the guts of a human being in a way that the guts of the story are hard to, hard to take. And then she has this move where she uses a word that we are more familiar with, to discuss guts and its style. And she says that this concept of style is um, ambiguous as it's used, but I consider it um, what this bookstore owner who wore weird glasses when she was a girl told him to be, which told her it was, which is the inevitable byproduct of the writer feeling their way through the shape of their creation. Um, and I get that definition of style. It's sort of the way that an individual decides to talk about plot and character is the the style, uh, but that felt a little bit too tangential, not as not as valuable as guts or the inner workings. But then this bookstore owner with the weird glasses said, "No, byproduct actually works because in his and then her understanding of byproduct, it's the way that the byproduct of a seed." is the plant or flower. So not not byproduct as we think of it as sort of this other thing that exists, but as like the 
the the visible core that we judge based on the root, I think, if you're going to take racination at its etymological form or the seed, and really that byproduct, that style, that manifestation, that guts, all of these things she's talking about is what she cares about in literature. And then she goes on to talk about what she likes in terms of style. Yes. Yeah. I thought, by the way, that you ran right past uh, what I thought. I, I just find this to be a hilarious line in the story. Unless you are a surgeon or the witness to a horrible accident, you aren't going to see the guts of a body. It's just like such a, like, there's no reason, like she just, she because she previously referred to the guts of a body, but then it's like saying, uh, you know, this gave, uh, you know, caused trouble with uh, bowel movements. Unless you go into the bathroom while somebody is pooping, you're not going to see someone else's bowel movements. It's just such a weird thing to say. But, totally, but it, such I, a weird. But, thing I, but to I love say. it. I mean, it's like it's it's it, part right. of what. Like my it's my response style, to this essay was like right like, her, right yeah she's like her arguments are incredibly confused, but I just find I just makes me it reminds me of why I like artists. Like she has such interesting instincts and and like obsessions, and she clearly like loves good writing. The like the like larger scaffolding she builds seems totally cattywampus and bizarre, but, but it's just like, oh, oh right. Artists are weirdos. I love this. I, I agree. She's very much, I mean, depending on who you are, either putting her money where her mouth is or having her semiotics match her memetics, right? Like right. she's, yeah, yeah. she's like doing the thing in the thing that she's <laughs> explaining. So I, yeah. I agree. It's both ridiculous and um, charming. Yeah. I found. Also, I thought this was, this felt to me like a Brian joke. The, dependent clause when you read a book review on goodreads or the new york times yeah <laughs> it's a good it's just such a good it's quiet a good little joke. You know. yeah right. it's the absolute leveling out of everything right <laughs> it's like yeah. if if it's written by your aunt's best friend or by like the leading critic in america you will find yeah uh, if you if you're having sex with a dysfunctional sex toy or your husband yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. um and yeah, then yeah. she, sorry, right. sorry, go ahead. should I, I, is it worth my saying what style it is she likes or do you want to, should we hold on? Well, yeah, well, I was just going to say like the, when she identifies this thing, style and, and some like the, the, she basically describes like meetings, a bookstore weirdo, and then like taking this one idea from him that sounds like it was kind of an interesting idea, but then it becomes really central for her, which is that, as you said, the, the form of the thing is is dictated by what it what it's accomplishing so like heliotrophy or whatever you call that where like the the shape of the plant is yep. dictated by the movement of the sun in the sky uh that's is that sort of interesting tropisms i, I always well, tro get the, those tropism well heliotropes are a kind of flower and then trope trophy oh. is growth it's like trophy's okay. the noun Towards form the, i think okay got but it i don't know maybe it's um, tropism um okay so but but then I also think like her when she talks about the guts or the unconscious to me that's like it seems at different times where she she's like something as flimsy as plot or theme has nothing to do with the abiding like meaning of the work over time she's like isn't that theme isn't like how is but, this style so like, I, I think that she would she would answer that question with um, something that we haven't gotten to yet but we're almost there which is that she would say that she does say that life even on a quiet day happens so densely and quickly around us that most of it is seeing, feeling, and thinking in a not strictly verbal way. 
-hmm. Writing translates all of this into words, but paradoxically, the most powerful writing uses words in a way that transcends language to become more true to life. It mimics how we live in a world that is constantly changing and moving before our eyes. So I think that she, yes, she would say that, yes, this sort of byproduct or this sort of not plot or character thing is actually the stuff of life that we spend our entire lives and what it means to be human seeing and smelling and feeling and not fully processing all of this into language. And the magic of literature is that although it is language at its best, it has this style, this guts, this other thing that goes beyond plot and story. I, to me, this is like linguistic metaphysics. Like, I just think like, I don't like the way people, when people, same thing I feel when people talk about like words fail and there's like, I, I just, I think like I'm such a materialist when it comes to language. I don't, I just am totally lost when you start talking. Like, I okay, get then, the, then, then let me, let yeah, me sorry, play devil's ahead. advocate here because yeah, yeah, I'm, because yeah. I, I do think I like this more than you do. And I, and I'm, I'm willing to defend it. I, yeah, please. I think she would say, and she does say again, it's um in description. If you, if you want to talk craft here, she would she she does sort of the, the metaphysical stuff that bothers you. But then she says, a thing I used to like in books that people aren't doing anymore is describing what characters mm -hmm. see out the window and describing people's faces. Yes. And, yeah. and that, that, that I think she's is a specific right. concern. That makes plenty of sense. I think she's right. I, I, is I think this a non-fake trend? Don't do that as much anymore. I think that might be a non-fake trend. I think that there are a lot of non-fake trends when it comes to how people, what people focus on in their writing. I think oh, that, so literature is the one arena in which trends are not fake. No, art, art, <laughs> art. Okay, art. Okay, right, there art. are there are trends in arts. There are not yeah, yeah. trends in life. I fashion, think that I, fashion, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Clothing. Yeah. There are trends, sure. right? I would never say that there there aren't. And I think that yeah. that. Um, I mean, you got me a little bit in my in my absolutism, <laughs> my anti anti trend absolutism. Um, there are trends in in uh, in blue jeans, and uh, like sometimes you people want to like unbutton their shirts with buttons and wear them over t shirts, and oh, then yeah, for, yeah. for decades they don't do that, and then they start doing that again. So like that's a that <laughs> yeah. seems like a trend. Some but, trends are fake, but, but yeah. she is. Uh, she really loves it when people yeah. describe what people's faces look like. Yeah. And, and, um, she, includes... and I don't care much about that. Like that's, that to me is, is the, is the interesting criticism that I would bring up where like, she only gives two examples of things that she wishes were different. And it's like, she wishes people would describe more stuff and she wishes people would describe more faces, but like, I don't, that right. seems like it doesn't quite link up to what it is. She, the, the like the, the the powerful early statements that she makes yeah i mean it, it does seem to me like like there's some strong personal feelings and instincts and frustrations and then some like aesthetic intuitions and affiliations and and she does what i think like most students do when they write an essay which is they they sort of put together a jumble in the shape of an argument. But in her case, like she's such a wonderful writer that it's it's like delightful to read, even if like ultimately it doesn't really amount to any kind of case for anything. But like plenty of the individual observations she make are she makes are 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 lovely. It is funny that the two 
two, two examples of, so she right, just places and faces. We used to describe those more. I wish we did. We don't need more. I have always found especially description of places to be the most boring thing to read and to write. I skip over them. Right. I, I always feel like I have to read them for to get my vegetables. And also because some of those things are confusing if you don't know what anything looks like. Yeah, yeah. But I always find it to be like the most boring, <laughs> totally just agree. like the celery or, you know, so I, I, that's surprising to me. And, and she seems to think it's a moral failing that we don't all just want to read. Like she says like, John Updike, he wrote about driving down the road for pages and pages and pages on and just describing what it looked like. And my students found this boring. And I think like, well, it sounds a little boring. Super boring. Right? But, but like, I guess that's a, a moral failing. I do love that she, she didn't include You do not guess two. that that's a moral failing. You don't think that's a moral failing at all. I feel, I think that almost everything that almost any feeling I have is a moral <laughs> failing is an indication of some weakness that I want. I like something or don't like something. Uh, she includes two excerpts from very good pieces of writing, one from Pale Fire by Vladimir Nabokov and one from Good Country People by Flannery O'Connor. And in neither of these is there much description of places no, or faces, but they're love, like, they, especially the Nabokov, yeah. I think like is very moving, but it's moving partly because of its theme. Right. It's not most, mostly because about. of plot and character right. makes yeah, it very moving. Exactly. I got really confused by that also. It was though, um, I went and like found my pale fire, which right, I haven't maybe read, read in, pale fire. in 30 yeah. years. It's and such I, a good I, 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 I don't remember I anything do... about it. I'm so excited to read it, like almost uh, with a blank oh. mind. Like I, I, because well, your current novel you're working on feels very much is that true? indebted well, to it. Yeah, yeah. that's what I, I mean, thought. Not I mean, a note, not in a way you should worry about, but like yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> like I assumed you had gone back to it before no. writing it. Yeah, yeah. No, no it's it's uh, so weird, and I think to me it's a little bit, it, it a little bit doesn't add up to a whole, but so I mean along the way it's just so good, and that I had forgotten about. This character who's a seemingly very delusional and like maybe sort of royal figure in another probably imaginary country who's also, it feels like culturally inaccurate to call him gay because he's he's like such a, a weirdo from the country of Zembla, but like he's homosexual, he's attracted to men and he marries this woman who's a girl, right? girl, like very young uh, uh, bride and he has no physical interest in her. And, and this sort of translates in her understanding and sort of his understanding into feeling no love. But like what's so beautiful about and like wrenching about this passage is that it's, it is a kind of like almost asexual, picturesque, idealized description of a beloved figure as one might, he, one might expect in like the, the adoring, uh, uh, prose of a like an, an, an exquisitely talented 12 year old and then right. except that it's like without any desire so it's like it's because it's all like if it were just love and adoration it would be a little bit much but because it's all framed within the context of his not desiring her but feeling terrible for kind of ruining her life it's so moving I agree and it strikes me that that sort of is indicative of how um, Mary Gateskill chooses books and characters yeah. and examples that that she likes. Uh, I I also felt that same thing where it, it's not about style though, no. and it's definitely not about people's faces or or places. 
the, the one paragraph that was the most confusing to me, how it fit into the into the essay, is the paragraph that begins, uh, that may sound rhetorical, but it isn't. And Let me find that. So she goes on to say, it, yeah, is, yeah, yeah. it is remarkable to me, based on the, the sample of humans that I've had in writing classes, which is like a funny turn of phrase, the, mm -hmm. the sample of humans I've had in writing classes, both, quote, kids, unquote, and adults, how many people, one, express great concern about climate change, which I don't think she's mentioned yet in this essay, no. and its effects on the planet, two, are completely uninterested in other humans' visions of what the planet they want to save looks you like. You care so much about climate change, why don't you read John Uptake? <laughs> right, I, I don't, and three, are even less interested in writing or just noticing what it looks like to them. That I mean, there's a giant logical leap there that people, yeah. because people claim to express is, is, a, is a little bit of a, a naughty word there, but people express great concern about climate change. So they're hypocrites for not looking at like photographs more or, or something. It's no, like, no, it was, no. Wanting to hear how other people experience other, looking right, at right, photographs, photographs and, and places right. and landscapes. So she, she totally lost me there. Um, but I... I mean, I also think her final example, which is about 11-year-olds staring out a, uh, a subway train looking as the train gathers momentum down the massive concrete and metal tunnels, uh, those kids were really into that view um, in a way they wouldn't be today, just like isn't true. Like if you're ever in the first or last car of a subway, like everyone from the age of like three to 300 is like obsessed with looking through the tunnel because it's totally fucking amazing and like there are all yeah. these like lights and rats and infrastructure and like how are we underground and like her her final example is of this extraordinary thing that she has this you know it was beautiful and the boys were radiant with it this worldless amazement of things Th like again when you talk about human beings i don't really believe in trends because like she's like i those those kids would not ex you know it makes me sad to think she writes that those same boys if they existed today wouldn't be looking out the subway window because they would be staring at a phone uh i, I don't know maybe maybe both uh, maybe neither but i she loses me there i do think that this is as um compelling an argument on behalf of style as i've read i think style is very difficult to to discuss and the, the idea that that style is the the style is what remains after an author has stripped away from him or herself the the plot and the character I think yeah. that there's something compelling to that. Calvino yeah. talks about magic objects, about how all all objects in fiction um, are magic, magic yeah. almost by definition, because you're choosing of a you know fr from an unlimited supply. Where if yeah. you if you walk into a room, there are an infinite number of sensory experiences or visual. Um, uh, cues or things or objects, whatever that uh, that you can you can discuss or you can mention, you can describe. So the fact that you're describing this particular thing not only is an important choice, but it imbues that specific particular thing with a certain literary magic. It it, it empowers it, right? Um, 
and and there's something to that that Gates skill is is on the uh, tangentially stating as well that like maybe we need more not random authorial description but like more moments that are less plot and character focused and more world setting i tend to disagree with that i think I, I i think that what really interests me are people she might then counter with saying well if you really want to understand the people then you really need to understand what the people are seeing and how they are seeing it because that's what it means to be human as much as you know falling in love or wanting something and and not getting it um but i i don't know there, there's something that's definitely worth contemplating here about like a novel or a short story minus characters and plot equals what? What do you have left there? And is style a good word for that? And should a writer spend more or less time on non-plot or character items? I think she would argue yes. I would argue probably not, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I. No, I mean, I was a little bit lost in a lot of her argument. I, I also like, I, I wrote down the note in here somewhere and you are better, you would be a better person to answer this question uh, because you read more contemporary fiction, but like is, is like a notable problem with contemporary fiction that it, that it has too much plot and character? Like, is that the thing that you would point to to say, like there's not enough digression. There's not enough. To, like it, I, I listened to an interview with like a super hot new Brooklyn novelist whose whole book was apparent, not whole book, who's like much of his book was like a, a detailed description of his main character taking a shit. And I thought like that sounds awful to me, but also like it was very praised and very and like, is it, is it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, con too contemporary, character con contemporary fiction is so fragmented now right. in terms of people who are writing, yeah. you know, whatever, auto fiction is, is, is supposed right. to mean but like which is just thoughts and and sort right. of uh looks down upon plot and then so isn't the Nausgaard isn't the Knausgaard doesn't he do lots of description yeah that yeah that's that's auto fiction and but that's not I mean but, but like that's not because of what's your name who does the um outline stuff that's all there's no description in that Rachel Cusk Rachel those are those books are like they everything takes place in a white void but but his books are also auto fiction and they're like like excruciatingly detailed descriptions of things i thought right but both of them exist in a implicitly and, and no plot, judgmental right? of plot aesthetic right but isn't that what she's like doesn't that seem to be what she wants well she doesn't go far enough and say that i sort of wanted her to say that but she doesn't she but she seems to say like i want more physical description and less plot does she see less plot or does she well, just she, say she more says a couple of times like oh god not these this good stuff instead of plot this to me is the emotional core of the book so she's about to define the emotional core of pale fire here hidden like the treasure in an intense description about a secondary character a description which is completely unnecessary to quote move the plot forward unquote so she does speak derisively about plot for plot's sake. Right. 
But like, I mean, Pale Fire is also like not a plotty book even beyond that. Like it's a, it's a wild, it's like a book that's made up of footnotes and a poem and an introduction. Like it, is that like the problem with our screenplays right now is they're all like mechanical plot machines, but I, I didn't get the impression that's really the problem with fiction right now. Again, I, I think that it's impossible to discuss fiction as fiction. I, I think that we're we're there's a school of fiction who takes what she's writing and defines itself based on that, which is yeah. plot is um, like uh, an, ar fiction. an artifice that that we're wasting our time yeah. with, and that that feels, you know, uh, icky and unacceptable. Um, yeah. And I I would I would put you know, Knozgaard and Cusk and some Sheila Hetty and right. um, Teju Cole and, you know, other sort of very, very, very highly respected contemporary novelists in that bucket. Um, and then, of course, there's super heavy plot. I mean, the, yeah. the, the Franzen books are all very plotted and yeah. as are, you know, the bunch of... And, and, then, and then I would put someone, you know, like Ishiguro, Ishiguro in, in between, who would right, right. definitely takes time to to describe things that I would like him to get through a little bit quicker. Um, but there is not only beginning, middle, and end. It's there's you know rising action as yeah. as Aristotle teaches us is necessary. Um, I, I think the whistle is is a real worthwhile story yeah, to take yeah, apart. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, just before we move on, I just wanted to note that, I mean, that this is as, this as is a, the um, yeah. the first. Uh, essay I think I've ever read in which somebody publicly shits on George Saunders as like not not only as a writer but like as a human I know there's like a great I moment know. of like George Saunders was incredibly mean to me and then she has this like like I come not to bury Caesar but to praise him Brutus is an honorable man moment she's like totally. George is a lovely man of course but he was a huge dick to me in this one right. moment like I'm not he, even sure he he meant to say what he said but yeah. <laughs> right yeah uh what's the it's very, very, she basically, she says like, I was waxing on about, um, I have a note that says me and George Saunders. Yep. Um, so she was in sit talking about how the entire world is out the window. What does it look mm -hmm. like to a character? She wants to know the sky, the trees, the buildings, uh, M dash and George passionately burst out. Like anybody does that question mark who looks out the window and thinks about trees question mark. Only people in books do that period end quote or something comma. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> I mean, in his his uh, I haven't read his his one novel, but his stories are light on scenic description. Certainly, there's like a lot of dialogue. Uh, they're often written in the first person, so he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't do a lot of describing places or faces. But but he also seems like a like an unusually kind and tolerant man. People love him. I know. Yeah. Joanna calls him I... fiction dad. She had a thing where she got to talk with him recently. Oh, that's right. She, yeah. That's right. That's right. And he was nice to her during that he was time. Low. He was incredibly nice and generous to her. And yeah. yeah. I had a problem where I came to George Saunders through a couple particularly incomprehensible short stories of his in college. And I never sort of forgave him for those. Mm. The, the longest one had to do with people living in a zoo exhibit as cavemen or, or something like that. Oh, Australia. Like, oh, I yeah. thought that was so funny. People think it's funny and I didn't yeah. get it. I, I didn't get it in the way that I don't get most Bartholomew. Like I don't, mm. I just kept on waiting. Like, is it an extended metaphor for something or is he saying yeah. something about something? Like, I don't, 
I, there was no plot really, but nor was there commentary. I don't, that, that type of work always uh, makes me uncomfortable and bored and, and angers me a little bit. Okay. So I haven't, I haven't been as generous to George Saunders as every other writer in the, in the world tells me I should be. Yeah. I mean, I, I just find his stories to be like a pure pleasure to read. So if they are not a pure pleasure to read, then yeah. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't try to sell them to you. But I do think that the whistle, as you said, the whistle is an excellent story, uh, which is, which, uh, you talked about on another episode and you, you slightly uh, and mistitled the title. it, right? Yeah, yeah. As the siren, but it's, uh, we got a very nice note from a listener who specifically requested, uh, this, uh, the, we talk about the story and that we, we were able to find it, um, for him. So I'll, I, I think I, I'll see if I can find a copy of it online to link to, but, uh, it's a very short story by Eudora Welty that was in her first collection, I think. It was early. I don't know whether it was the first collection, but it's it's six pages and it barely six pages, and it is. I think it's a, it's a quiet masterpiece. Like I, I yeah. think that it's I think that it's really good, and I'm I'm willing to d discuss it. Had you read it before? No, I had not. Uh, it's it feels. I mean, it's a little bit like a um, a little bit like a Kafka story. I mean, it's not as it doesn't feel as alienating. It feels much more human and and tangible and homey but it's uh no it's i think it's wonderful is it so my only uncertainty was is it short enough to read or is it too long for that i think we should read excerpts okay. i think i think it might be a little bit too long i i think that the whole thing is worth reading mm -hmm. but um i don't think the beginning is necessary so i mean i don't think the entirety is necessary so it, it begins it's called the whistle by eudora welty it begins night fell. The darkness was thin, like some sleazy dress that has been worn and worn for many winters and always lets the cold through to the bones. Then the moon rose. A farm lay quite visible, like the white stone in water among the stretches of deep woods in their colorless dead leaf. By a closer and more searching eye than the moon's, Everything belonging to the Mortons might have been seen, even to the tiny tomato plants in their neat rows closest to the house, gray and feather-like, appalling in their exposed fragility. The moonlight covered everything and lay upon the darkest shape of all, the farmhouse, where the lamp had just been blown out. From there we get to the Mortons, Jason and Sarah Morton, who are the farmers, we find out later, they no longer even own their own tiny piece of land where they grow this very small amount of, you know, gray and, and withered tomatoes, which appears to, if not be their only crop, definitely the most important crop and therefore the most important thing in their life other than each other, although we find out that they haven't spoken to each other for a very, very long time. And their entire world is this little house, there are few tomato plants, um, their mattress and bedding, her dress, his shirt, table, chairs, fireplace. Yes. The, it's, it's incredibly cold. We start in this really under these really bleak conditions where like the, the one vain hope they have is to get the get the crop um, 
you know, not to totally fail, but it, things look pretty bleak and then they get uh, bleaker. But first there's this passage that they I- They fall asleep just, first, right? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, they, they well, they fall asleep um, as, and, and it's not clear if it's, if she is falling asleep or if she's still half awake, but the passage that it actually reminded me of some of your writing because it it has the momentum and pitch of a rant, but it's it's just a a fantasy. It's like it's a it's a an an image of life at its very best under these with this particular set of concerns, which is like it's cold as fuck, we're poor as fuck. There's uh there there are no tomatoes. Like the tomatoes are gonna fail. We're not gonna have tomatoes. And so there's this. I I think it's just like. I found this like really funny and enjoyable to listen to or to read, but she she's as she's sort of lying there in this you know uh, waxing and waning consciousness. Uh, then all hidden as she was under the quilt, she began to imagine and remember the town of Dexter in the shipping season, which is the nearest town to where they live. There, in her mind, dusty little Dexter became a theater for a theater for almost legendary festivity, a place of pleasure. On every road leading in, smiling farmers were bringing in wagon loads of the most beautiful tomatoes. The packing sheds at Dexter Station were all decorated. No, it was simply that the May sun was shining. Mr. Perkins, the tall, gesturing figure, stood in the very center of everything, buying, directing, waving yellow papers that must be telegrams, shouting with grand impatience. And it was he, after all, that owned their farm now. So we learned that maybe they used to own it. Yeah, train after now. train of empty freight cars stretched away, waiting and then being filled. Was it possible to have saved out of the threat of the cold so many tomatoes in the world? Of course, for here marched in a perfect parade of Florida Packers all the way from Florida, tanned, stockingless, some of them tattooed. The music box was playing in the cafe across the way and the crippled man that walked like a duck was back taking poses for a dime of the, of the young people with their heads together. With shouts of triumph, the men were getting drunk and now and then a pistol went off somewhere. In the shade, the children celebrated in tomato fights. The best line of the whole story. Oh, that's the best line of the story. Oh, it's so in good. In the shade, yeah. the children... <laughs> Just, just those four words together celebrated in tomato fights like they it's so good there's so it's there are too so, many tomatoes there's so many tomatoes it's just a cornucopia it's just like it's her vision of of heaven and paradise and just like an unbelievable childish joy these tomatoes that she's protecting in her in her dream there are just too many tomatoes that people are people are fighting with I, I, the idea of a tomato fight is something i've never heard before but you know immediately what she's talking about oh yeah yeah it's so yeah right well apparently there is one every year in like spain or somewhere there's like a massive tomato fight that they do that's a big deal um but then so so they they're um they uh are lying in bed it's cold it's colder and colder the husband's sort of snoring it's never i can't remember if she ever properly falls asleep but um but then we hear about the titular whistle um in dexter there is a great whistle which is blown when a freeze threatens it is known everywhere as mr perkins whistle remember mr perkins is the yeah, guy who he's the guy who buys the tomatoes, the tomatoes who, who owns everywhere their farm. and yeah, who owns their farm he's the big man in dexter now it sounded out in the clear light blast after blast over the countryside lights appeared in the windows of the farms men and women ran out into the fields and covered up their plants with whatever they had while mr perkins whistle blew and blew um and she has to wake up her husband who's sleeping so soundly which given the cold it's like almost alarming uh that this is it's like you know that uh it's so uncomfortable that they're barely able to fall asleep but then he's sleeping so soundly she has to shake him and shake him um they don't even 
they don't uh, she, it's, 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 they, they, they don't, don't talk. even talk at all i don't think they talk anywhere in the story um, at the very end at the very end very, only yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's, it's uh, one, welty plays that yeah, game yeah, where yeah, there's yeah. not no one speaks the entire time they both yeah. say one word at the end oh god yeah i forgot yeah what yeah they, was, so uh, she sat up seizing uh, then she was sitting up and seizing her husband by the shoulders without saying a word rocking him back and forth it took all her strength to wake him he coughed, his roaring was over, and he sat up. He said nothing either, and they both sat with bent heads and listened for the whistle. After a silence, it blew again, a long, rising blast. Promptly, Sarah and Jason got out of bed. They were both fully dressed because of the cold and only needed to put on their shoes. Jason lighted the lantern, and Sarah gathered the bedclothes over her arm and followed him out. Everything was white, and everything looked vast and extensive to them as they walked over the frozen field. White in a shadowed pit, abandoned from summer to summer, the old sorghum mill stood like the machine of a dream with its long prostrate, prostrate, sorry, with its <laughs> long prostrate pole, its blunted axis. Um, and then this, this next paragraph is just crushing. Agreed. Stooping over the little plants, Jason and Sarah touched them and touched the earth. For their own knowledge, by their hands, they found everything to be true. The cold, the rightness of the warning, the need to act, over the sticks set in among the plants, they laid the quilts one by one, spreading them with a slow ingenuity. Jason took off his coat and laid it over the small tender plants by the side of the house. Then he glanced at Sarah, and she reached down and pulled her dress off over her head. Her hair fell down out of its pins, and she began at once to tremble violently. The skirt was luckily long and full, and all the rest of the plants were covered by it that luckily that's, that's, i know i know and that they, look to her they're so without saying anything oh God, yeah yeah after he's taken his coat off like they, they've been what they had was so inadequate to keep them warm already and now in a gesture that it seems doomed almost to fail they're, they're right taking everything Se away. seems futile it also emphasizes how few tomatoes it is they have you know yeah, if like yeah, yeah. the way to save these tomatoes are by taking off literally just like their bed sheets his coat and her dress you know and like that's what they're saving here you have you know in in, in what we were discussing maybe last time or the time before like in the what does he want and how does he go about getting it right it's like it, it exists on two levels in the story and in, in a really masterful way um and i'm not a, a huge fan of of all of welties but I, I think the story does it so well which is what do they want? And how do they go? They, they want to save the tomatoes and how yeah. do they do it? They uh, cover the tomatoes with all their stuff. Um, at the same time, what do they want? They want to be warm. They, right. they, they can't, they, they haven't been warm for so long. And these two desires are at odds with one another where- Because it's they, warmth they, for both. Exactly. Yeah. And there's only a certain amount of clothing either for them or the tomatoes. And in the long run, it's better to save the tomatoes, which makes them even colder so they go back home and the room is the same temperature as outside because they in their rush they forgot to close the uh the door to their house so the heat that oh, had God, been yeah. building from the fire place is no longer in the room and and forgot in this because they were it was so urgent what they were exactly doing. exactly yeah. they're they're sprinting um and then the question of what do they want shifts yeah. and the story is imbued with a, a type of passion that was only in the story previously in that tomato fight in that sort of like brief 
moment of pleasure and exquisite joy about imagining the heart of summer when tomatoes are able to be sold and money is flowing and everybody's exciting. But we, we don't remember that anymore when we get to this part of the story. And it's not introduced like that. But what we get next is they're, they're, they sit down and they wait for morning and are physically shivering and don't have their bed sheets or their clothes. So they're really suffering here. Then yeah. Jason, yeah, well, go should ahead. I read or did you want yeah, to? Yeah, please, please, something? no, please. Then Jason did a rare, strange thing. There, long before morning, he poured kerosene over some kindling. So the idea is that every day they save a little bit of kindling right. for, for the and, day and to heat up. But he's, he's doing this uh, prematurely because they're cold. Yeah. He pours kerosene over some kindling and struck a light to it. Squatting, they got near it. Quite gradually, they drew together and sat motionless until it all burned down. Still, Sarah didn't move. Then Jason in his underwear and long blue trousers went out and brought in another load. And the big cherry log, which, of course, was meant to be saved for the very last of winter. And at this point, the reader is thinking, like, what's going on here? Like, they, they, they burn their kindling for the day, but they're also burning this. I mean, I don't know what it means to save a log for the last of winter, but we're, we're now a little bit out of time and place here. Like they, they're, he, he, he's, he's, he needs the, he's getting excited or, or he's, he's doing things that are very uncharacteristic of their way of yeah. life, which is so ordered and orderly at this yeah. point. I mean, the, and presumably then, the big cherry log is like that. That's the big source of warmth that they're, they're not gonna like it's like that they're saving they're, yeah. they're saving up yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. it doesn't even get them through the night so like what, right. what is how big I mean, could no, this, like, none of this all of this stuff right so quickly exactly exactly and that's yeah, sort yeah, of this yeah. magical element where like i would think right. the cherry log that if you were to save it for the end of winter you would think it would last for a week but right. in the next paragraph we get and now the, the vocabulary changes the extravagant warmth of the room had sent some kind of agitation over sarah and then we go explicitly to what I mentioned earlier, like her memories of Dexter in the shipping season. She sat huddled in a long brown cotton petticoat, holding onto the string which went around her waist. Her mouse-colored hair, paler at the temples, was hanging down loose to her shoulders, like a child unbound for a party. She held her knees against her numb, pendulant breasts and stared into the fire, her eyes widening. On his side of the hearth, Jason watched the fire burn too. His breath came gently, quickly, noiselessly, as though for a little time he would conceal or defend his tiredness. He lifted his arms and held out his misshapen hands to the fire. And then just like that, that's Brian speaking, back to the story now, at last every bit of the wood was gone. Now the cherry log was burned to ashes, and all of a sudden Jason was on his feet again. Of all things, he was bringing the split bottom chair over to the hearth. He knocked it to pieces. It burned well and brightly. Sarah never said a word. She did not move. Then the kitchen table. To think that a solid, steady, four-legged table like that, that had stood 30 years in one place, should be consumed in such a little while. Sarah stared almost greedily at the waving flames. Then, when that was over, Jason and Sarah sat in darkness where their bed had been, 
and it was colder than ever. The fire the kitchen table had made seemed wonderful to them, as if what they had never said and what could not be had its life too after all. But Sarah trembled, again pressing her hard knees against her breast. Then, when that was over, Jason and Sarah sat in darkness where their bed had been, and it was colder than ever. The fire the kitchen table had made seemed wonderful to them, as if what they had never said and what could not be had its life too, after all. But Sarah trembled, again pressing her hard knees against her breast. In the return of winter, of the night's cold, something strange like fright or dependency, a sensation of complete helplessness took possession of her. All at once, without turning her head, she spoke. Jason. A silence, but only for a moment. Listen, said her husband's uncertain voice. They held very still as before with bent heads. Outside, as though it would exact something further from their lives, the whistle continued to blow. Those two as ifs are really, or as if and as though, as if what they had never said and what could not be had its life too after all, and then as though it would exact something further from their lives. Just as a like mechanical plot, it's, I mean, it's, it is, uh, it's really efficiently built. I mean, we're given like a limited number of physical props and she makes really thorough use of all of them. And we see them totally, I mean, the truly is nothing else left to them. And it's, I mean, I think the, which is an old teaching trope, right? Like a short story, you should introduce all these elements yeah. of, of kindling, and by the end, they should all be burned up. You know, like every every detail has to be used. You has to be your used. value from it. And this yeah. is almost like a literalization of that, where she she shows us the house and the tomatoes, and then inside the house there are these two people and these few pieces of furniture, and by the end, the tomatoes are dead. The people are freezing cold and all of the furniture has been burnt up. Yeah. And I, I'm a little bit interested in, uh, in a couple aspects of your slightly inaccurate memory of the story. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to do that as well. Go for it. Yeah. One, one, one being that it's, you called it the siren, which it's totally, I mean, totally makes sense as to, as to what it would be. And if it were today, it would be some, Klaxon horn, you know, some electronic or you know, sound. It wouldn't be a physical whistle, but uh, but siren, of course, also has a suggestion of you know, Odyssean magic and you know, like a a call which to I something think works, that might also which, be dangerous. Which is more exciting, right? Because it, it is exactly. Like the I, I wonder is, whether I did that subconsciously or not. But. Oh no, I think so. But I th also think like that. It's a whistle makes it bleaker. Like there's right. not even that extra layer. It's just this, because the whistle is also like a commanding 
like something you whistle, you blow a whistle for like prisoners or dogs. Right. And this you is, this is Mr. Perkins whistle. whistle. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Um, I mean, you have that moment w which speaks to the, the, a similar question, the word greedily on page, uh, we have different oh, yeah, yeah. sorry. But um, so he throws his kitchen table that has lasted 30 years. And, and yeah. I really don't know what happens to time if this is real or right. sort of accordion to, an, to slow down and speed night. up. Yeah. Right. But they had had this table for 30 years and it is consumed in a sentence, you know, yeah. and it's unclear exactly, but should be consumed in such a little while, exclamation point. Sarah stared almost greedily at the waving flames. So she is, there is a moment of like the, the only two moments of passion and joy are both frenzied. They're both yeah. in her. One is in her fantasy memory. It's unclear yeah. exactly what that tomato fight is. Yeah. Um, and one is when they're burning all their stuff. And it's like, I, the, the story on one level is what do they want? They want to save their tomatoes and they want to be warm. And how do they get it? By covering their tomatoes with their clothes and burning all their stuff. But the other thing is like, they want any moment in their life to matter in any way or to like yeah. to escape them from this gray and white landscape. Um, and the way that happens is just sort of like they will remember this moment for for the rest of their lives they've given themselves this moment of passion and pleasure and despair and yeah. there's something um and, uh, and, as and it keeps reason. on escalating there's something increasingly powerful about that to me yeah i mean and the the the, the logic of their condition their circumstance is is extremely exacting so that they've presumably they they had to sell the farm to get money to survive to plant more tomatoes they're, they're taking off their clothes to put on the tomato you know everything everything is functional everything you know which exactly. is why they don't even need to talk exactly. and this is a moment of just pure unreason pure excess and it does it it, it reminded me that and then the the two little words they they exchange at the end Reminded me of a, a kind of a brief, just a passing moment early in the story when she talks about, she says, um, sometimes uh, many days, weeks went by without words. They were not really old. They were only 50. Their lives were filled with tiredness, with, with a great lack of necessity to speak, with poverty, which may have bound them like a disaster too great for any discussion, but left them still separate and undesirous of sympathy. Perhaps years ago, the long habit of silence may have been started in anger or passion. Who could tell now? But it, it's a function, you know, they don't need to talk in order to do everything that they are doing on the most functional survival subsistence level. But but maybe there was some other time when it, at least there was a suggestion that they might have, that, that any talk they would have would be above and beyond what was necessary. That there was something else to their lives other than just mere survival. And you wonder in the end of this whether whether the characters or whether Welty is is intimating that, that the characters are that this is an act of love of of some kind. You know, we, we have these little moments of uh, squatting. They got near it, the fire. Quite gradually, they drew together and sat motionless, like you you wonder like they're drawing together there she says his name like you, you it, it it's futile it doesn't work like it's yeah, not yeah. like this is a happy ending but you wonder yeah. that we're with all the destruction 
does it break the silence in some way? And is that a, a victory in, in some minor way? And I think that the ambiguity there is is the power. Or like, is this a moment of horror or joy when when he burns everything? Is this is this rock bottom for them, or is this the beginning mm-hmm. of of a new stage or something? I, I think what's what's so delicately wonderful about this story is that it's it's a tragedy and it's only a tragedy but within the tragedy there are these there are these moments of art and like moments of joy and passion and and they're so quiet that uh i don't know there's just something really lovely about it yeah you know it's it, it is i mean because i think if it's just a story about terrible poverty and these this couple being you know piece by piece torn down to nothing then it's still extremely well made but it is a little bit uh unsatisfying beyond a sort of a a social commentary level but it you're right that the like the the weird intersection of joy and horror or despair and like epiphany is i can't resolve it i can't figure it out but it is undeniably there and the, the oddly the comparison that comes to mind is um, maybe Welty's most famous story which is a worn path um which is about a a pretty frail but very dogged grandmother going on a a uh <laughs> like an unbelievably difficult and demanding walk through the woods and, and into town to buy a if i remember it's like a paper windmill yeah, I haven't like read it a, since graduate school. What yeah. happens at the end? So like, she bought, she finally makes it all the way. It's like so grueling and demanding at just getting, you know, barely getting there to town to go in to buy, you know, like with the one coin she has it, you know, rubbing in her pocket. And she, you know, she kind of gives everything she has to make it into town to buy this like kind of, you know, tall, flimsy paper crap. windmill right. for right. her. I mean, it's not just a piece of crap. It's also like it's it's totally useless and silly and it's maybe like a Don Quixote reference and it's like the easiest thing in the world to just break and you know um and then she balances it on top of her hand and then she turns back to start (laughs) to like start the whole journey back to and like there's some ambiguous and this story ends there the story ends with her like turning back to go the start the way these like we just saw her do one and it's called a worn path she's like she's done this many times right and her they're also it's ambiguous but there i know some readers have said like oh is her grandson actually like dead like is he even there for her um but she just sort of is like in her she her vision's very bad and she you know but it's like she she just turned there's no drama in it for her it's like it's it's the the of courseness of it all for her is part of what makes it so staggering for us but it reminds me of this even though that story is sort of takes its takes its uh emphasis from its from the the suggestion that this is just one time of many whereas here this really is a like well why you know tonight is very different from every other night right but but it plays with the same idea of bleakness and where there are like moments of frivolity within that bleakness and and that frivolity becomes so much more powerful here one of the reasons i like this story is it's almost this in some ways is like the best or most significant day of their life like if you take this story literally like they burn all their shit to be hot for a few hours like that it's they let themselves be greedy and like it's 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 beyond epiphanic it's like 
we haven't allowed ourselves anything for ever. And like now we're giving it, it all away, which is a powerful moment. But then of course the fact that the whistle continued to blow at the end yeah, yeah. is like such a punch to the gut. Was there anything else that you remember me misremembering? Oh yeah. So one important thing, which was, which was that the, the way you described it, if I, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, was that while the whistle blew, the temperature was very low, but then the whistle stopped blowing and then they burned the table and then it started blowing again, suggesting that it had dropped. And of course, like it does sort of do that because we don't realize it's still blowing the whole time right. until we're right. reminded that they hear it again. Right. So it, but it is, it is an odd kind of, that in this, this is actually sort of bleaker almost than what you would describe. Like there's, that they there was didn't never, even get the reprieve. there wasn't even right. a reprieve. There wasn't even a hope that there were, that it would have been. Yeah. That, 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 that at least they had saved the tomatoes. And it's, it's interesting because it's also less manipulative. Right. Like yeah. This. It would have been like super sadistic. In, right. <laughs> in my, in my way, it's just like, right. It's. But you're totally describing the reader's experience. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah I, I'm experiencing, I, I described the way I earnestly misread it probably initially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you just, I mean, I, I don't think you included that wonderful fantasy sequence, which just sort of gives a gives an additional um, heft to to their their excitement and their suffering. So I know you have to parent, but one question just yeah. to try to tie a bow here is, do you think Gateskill would like this story? I think, I I think so, and I also, I mean, partly she does describe place a lot. Absolutely, I, I feel she doesn't like describe. The, does she describe faces? I mean, she no, describes no. We I mean, get a little we, we bit get of a her description the body, of like the cold knees of and the pendulous Um But yeah, we not get um, her mouse-colored hair. Paler at the temples was hanging loose down to her shoulders, right, 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 like yeah. a child's unbound for a party. Oh God, yeah, like yeah, child. Um, but no, we don't, we don't get who they are. I also think that it doesn't really matter what they look like here. They sort right. of even to each other, like appearance. They're yeah. the two of them are so far beyond appearances. Yeah, yeah. Even, even, be, even like just they were not really old. They were only fifty. Even that just tells you both like sort of what they look like and maybe how much it doesn't matter. Right. But we we get something which I would not trust myself to pull off here and which I don't know whether we can say, you know, in, in the trend of of short story writing was more acceptable then, but much of the first page is just a description of first the house and then two people lying, trying to sleep. And and that's a lot to ask a reader to sit through now, you know, yeah, it, yeah. It, even though it's only one page, but it's, it doesn't, there's no hook. There's no initial story. There's no character right. or plot. It is pure yeah. description and it's not within the, uh, the mind of either of the characters. There's a, an omniscient, you know, moon is, is sort of yeah. the, the closest thing we get to a, you know, it's, it's not the bird's eye view. It's, it's the, the, the lunar view or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, which works with the bleak, you know, pale light and white and gray of it. But I, I we, do think, we also get like the, the the dress simile in the beginning, and then the, and then the exactly. farmhouse lamp blowing out. So even though you're right, there's no hook. She is 
she is setting out she's she's setting the table even in that first paragraph. oh i mean textbook like if, if yeah. you look at the first the first paragraph is almost written by a writing teacher more than a, yeah, yeah. a, a writer night fell right the whole story is going to happen at night darkness was thin like some sleazy dress that had been worn and worn for many winters and always let the cold through to the bones i mean that that meta that, that that simile is too on the nose. It's yeah. then the moon rose, the farm lay quite visible, like a white stone in water among the deep stretches of uh, among the stretches of deep woods. Again, with the colorless dead leaf, but and then a colder, more searching eye than the moon's. Everything belonging to the Mortons might be seen. That's everything that'll yeah. get burnt later. And then we get even the tiny tomato plants in their neat rows closest to the house, gray and feather-like, right? Like how um, vulnerable the tomatoes are, appalling in their exposed fragility. Yeah, I mean, it, this is funny, yeah, this, and this is in Curtain of Green, which was, I think, her first collection. And also, Curtain of Green is also just another tiny, really extraordinary story. That one has some some other problems with that one, but that's all another just amazing short, short story, which is, again, it's like, a, it sort of tells a moment of Tells about a moment of of uh, release of catharsis without relief of suffering. Right. I guess a lot of these stories do. There, there are moments of release, a moments of frivolous pleasure, a moments uh, of like prioritizing the moment over the long slog, and yeah. it's thrilling to experience. Yeah. Do you think they're changed? I mean, obviously, their physical conditions are changed, but do you think they—they're going to cope? I do. I, I think that they—they they shook themselves out of this, this stupor that they've been living in, uh, probably for the worse. But right, yeah. you know, given that they were just going to like be cold and try to protect their tomatoes and not talk until they died, this was something that happened, and yeah, hard to know if it was for the better or the worse i mean probably if i were like probably for the worse their parents or uncle i would say for right. the worse like i now they got no stuff but yeah but in terms of a, a life best led like maybe having this one night where they burn all their stuff is worth having burnt all their stuff yeah and in the morning they're gonna go to dexter and murder mr perkins exactly <laughs> exactly the tomato assassins they, just, <laughs> they go from from tomato kingpin to tomato kingpin slitting throats That was our show. Uh, thank you for listening. You can reach me as always at sleerickets at gmail.com. Uh, I'm not on Twitter anymore, but Brian is. And uh, you can also find Alice out there in the ether on Poetry Says. Uh, I just recorded a little segment for an upcoming episode of her. She's done some really good stuff lately. So if you have not been listening to Poetry Says, do go check it out. Um, and uh, she de she described Sleever Gets recently as being like her podcast viewed in a convex mirror. It's a little nod to Ashbury, I think, which I guess means that Poetry Says is this podcast viewed in a con concave mirror. Yeah, a concave mirror, which I don't know if that sounds appealing or not, but Poetry Says is certainly worth a listen. Uh, and uh, go sniff out Cameron on her atmosphere. Give him... Give him some grief. The, uh, what the fuck do I usually say? With any luck, I will be speaking to you all again very soon. Until then. 